0: John Copenhaver, and Al Warren Heard on KCAA, 106.5 FM Los
3: Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and
0: 1050 AM
2: Palm Springs. We're back now, uh, and joining us today is uh, the one and only filmmaker, John Borowski. How are you doing, John?
1: Good. Thank you for having me on.
2: So now um, I bring you on because you've been doing a lot of work lately and I've noticed that and you've got a, a fundraiser going because you're making a new film. And um, Tell us a little bit about the film and what you're trying to accomplish with it.
1: Yeah, my latest film is called The John Wayne Gacy Murders Life and Death in Chicago and realizing. Especially now how difficult it is to fund films. It's just gotten more difficult over time. You know, you would think with, you know, 20 years experience, five films and four books, it would be a lot easier for me, but it's actually 360 degrees opposite it's uh, even more difficult as ever <laughs> to actually wow. find money for these projects nearly impossible i can't even get 10 grand to make the gacy movie that's how difficult it is and my budget's usually range for these minimum 25 to 50 grand so it's going to be a different film you know it's not going to be similar to my others in style just because there's a lack of budget you know so far we're doing an online fundraiser and we've brought in about you know, a little over 2,000, so, you know, I mean, you could imagine with film, there's not much you could get for that other than maybe gas and parking, (laughs) you know, so. (laughs) It uh, depends on what city, too. That's true, yeah, that's true, Oh, yeah, and of course, in Chicago, you're talking 30 to 50 an hour for parking, (laughs) but, um, you know, I knew I was up against these issues because I had kind of seen it. Going in that direction as far as funding goes, and these online fundraisers—they're ubiquitous. You know, kind of like you know, um, all the arts now. You know, anyone anyone could make a you know film, a book, a radio show, a podcast, and get it out there. You know, so it's oversaturated. You know, so it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, recently I learned that Elvira was refused for her own show on Amazon and Netflix. Now, if Elvira, who's a classic icon, can't even get her own show, we're all in the same boat, you know, as artists. Unless you're DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, we are all in the same boat. I'm in the same boat as all these other celebrities and artists out there, in that, you know, we've kind of been cast aside, thrown away, and, you know, they want to make room for the new blood, you know. But um, that's what's going on. So I decided, okay, you know, Gacy's a local story. I could do it locally and, you know. Uh, that's what I decided to do and it's been great so far we've had about five or six interviews everyone's been very positive in you know reacting to the film and coming on board to be interviewed local CBS reporter Walter Jacobson who actually interviewed and met Gacy Gacy's last defense attorney Karen Conti. Um, We interviewed uh, several Chicago gay history experts. We interviewed Gacy's Waterloo prosecutor, Dave Dutton. And there are more coming on board, more interviews within uh, this month and next month. So that's been going really well.
3: Are you also uh, looking for actors to volunteer for, like, scenes while you're doing this?
1: Well, you know what? When I began this film, I tried to do it kind of opposite of what I usually do. Usually I do all the interviews first, film all the interviews, and then I kind of build the story around that. And I thought, well, this time I'm going to do it opposite. I'm going to actually write the script and then kind of fill in the interviews with that. But you can't really do that. It's an organic process. You can't put words in people's mouths and you never know what the interviewers are going to say. So your script is kind of thrown out the window. Right. So, and then I did begin writing it with reenactments in mind, but there's, you know, the other problem, you know, what if the budget doesn't come in for that? So I'm kind of setting myself up for failure in that sense, because uh, the reenactments are are pretty much part of the largest cost of the production of these documentaries, that and travel. You know, if I have to travel anywhere to interview somebody, there's their plane fare and the hotel and car and all that. But And that's why I'm saving money doing Gacy locally. But, um, you know, with this, I don't know. I'd love to do some reenactments, but, They might be minor to none for this one, but we'll see how it goes. You know, I have a completion date of August 1st of next year, so anything could happen within that time, but you know, so far the, you know, it's, I've been you know working on this for at least two or three months and it looks like that's how it's going to be you know kind of more or less like my last my not my last film but my film on serial killer culture where it's interviews with people so the film is about gacy but it's kind of it might be more about the culture and the people that were involved with him like his the attorneys and the art collectors and you know all of those other people so it might be you know many stories that make up the entire film
3: right and John Wayne Gacy was—he was also a narcissist, and uh, and then um, with that, and you know his name John Wayne wasn't his father, wasn't he one that wanted to have a, a, a powerful young male, but then yeah. John, he wasn't that <laughs> <right> way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, uh, John John Wayne Gacy's father was John Stanley Gacy, so he's actually John Gacy Jr., but they did name him, you know, gave him the middle name of Wayne because, of course, you know, John Wayne is the typical, you know, American kind of, you know, hero, and uh, you know the, the the cowboy that had these morals and values. You know, not necessarily a sports star, but you know, kind of like a man's man in a sense. And you know, it, it Gacy's mother said that if Gacy's father ever found out that he would he was gay, he would kill him. Wow. So you could imagine what kind of environment he grew up inside of that household, plus the time period growing up in the 1950s probably one of the worst times ever in history to be gay in america right right mm-hmm.
2: Didn't he call so a it's my too? Or-
1: oh yeah oh man oh he called i mean you know his father called you know gacy and gays every name in the book pretty much you know and you know gacy grew up in this environment and you know you're hearing this from your father and society in the 50s was pretty much against it. there were no outlets where could you go you know it's it's much different nowadays so it's really my theory that, you know, his father and maybe even more so society created Gacy because he hated himself and mm-hmm. he took out that self-hatred on his victims. He mm-hmm. thought these were dirty, disgusting, you know, uh, homosexuals, but he was that himself, mm-hmm. you know? So he was a gay man who hated homosexuals. Now try <laughs> and figure that out psychologically. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. Pretty bizarre. Um, so why do you think it 's such a struggle now getting money for independent films like what's what, what what's what, wheres it going then like who who's doing what
1: you know i I wish I had an answer for that you know i I really don 't have an answer uh, I have no idea i mean i I think it 's maybe change of guard at you know some of these streaming services. you know when um the shift took place from DVD to streaming. You know, I made sure to get involved with Netflix and they licensed pretty much all my films and they licensed Holmes for a good eight or ten years every year. It did very well. You know, there were points where it was the number one watched film in the entire Chicagoland area. But for some reason, you know, uh, within the last year or two, Netflix just decided not to deal with little indies anymore. And, you know, maybe now there's you know, enough content, but um, they didn't uh, acquire my last film, Bloodlines, on the artist Vincent Castiglia, who paints in blood. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but but there is this, you know, very strange shift, you know. Um, right. There was one point where I thought I had, you know, this great long relationship with Netflix, and then um, this author who was writing a book on a serial killer Um, had this great idea, and he wanted to take the book that's going to be coming out within the next year or two and, you know, make a documentary on it. And, of course, he loved my work and came to me, and I I thought, you know, I was, you know, uh, believe me, I was humbled by that. It was great. So then I contacted Netflix, and I, you know, tried to find out, okay, maybe this is such a great idea, they should acquire this. This is a show that everybody's going to want to see. There are a lot of great elements. the Serial Killer still alive. There's... Heads involved. There's prostitutes. There's murders. There's a daughter whose, you know, mother was murdered and her head might still be buried somewhere. This is a phenomenal story. So I go to Netflix and they responded. I tried to find out, okay, who's in charge of their original programming, you know, mm-hmm. to try and have them fund this project. Mm-hmm. So you know, the first thing you you get in you know that comes up is all these barriers I lived in LA for four years that's all there was was barriers you know they don't want to let anybody win what they say about you need to know someone which is true and, and my problem is is I'm kind of a lone wolf and I don't kiss ass so I, I can't really fit into this industry so um, you know I, I reached out to Netflix and their response to my asking them about who their contact was for original programming was find a good attorney or lawyer that's what they told me, this company that I had an 8- to 10-year relationship with. So, you know, basically that was them telling me, go screw yourself. Hmm,
2: so they're looking for big names now. That's, they're getting into the big, uh, they're, they're kind of the leader of the pack right now for streaming.
1: Well, yeah, I think they are, you know, but, you know, now there are these other companies. All these companies are trying to branch off, CBS and uh, Disney, and they're all trying, you know, pretty soon there's going to be hundreds of channels, you know, and I don't know how people are going to afford all this stuff, you know, at 20 bucks a pop or whatever, but, you know, and, and see, that's what I thought. I thought, okay, you know, maybe it is a bigger name thing, and I, okay, you know, um, you know, I make documentary films on serial killers. I'm pretty much known worldwide. And my last film, Bloodlines, I thought, well, this is going to be the big ticket. That's what everybody says. Well, you know, your next one might be the big one. Your next one's going to be uh, the one that's going to shoot over the top. You know, I had in Bloodlines, I had Margaret Cho in it, Greta Alman's last interview, the mm-hmm. members of Slayer. I had, you know, there were some high profile people in this film. A lot of heavy metal artists that are well known throughout the world. Netflix didn't even pick that up and, I, you know, didn't even give me a rhyme or reason for it. And so it, I don't even know. It, it Maybe it's not even the big, you know, again, who knows. So I, I realized that from this point forward, if I'm going to continue, you know, I've got to, you know, basically do it on my own. And with the help of my fans, when I do these fundraisers, you know, I, I worry about, you know, sending out perks. But when I've talked to people, they said, you know, we just want to help you. You know, mm-hmm. we don't even care about the perks. We just want to donate and we want to see your movies made. And that's great, and a lot of people have stepped up, you know, and have some people have sent me actual serial killer letters and autographs to resell to use for the funding of the film. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's not just financial. You know, you could share the link. There are many ways to go about it, you know. But, you know, again, it's no matter what way, you know, you're going about it, it's it's difficult, but for some reason it's harder now for me than it was, you know, 20 years ago.
2: Is Amazon not any better?
1: You know, Amazon is great because what they do is they pretty much allow anyone to upload anything they want as long as it's closed captioned. So that's great, you know, but um initially when they started their program it was great, you know, and it still is. You know, it's still an exceptional program, but they've lowered the rates, you know, Over the last couple years so you know i'm not complaining it's still a great program you know but um you know as as far as you know uh you know any any uh, huge amounts of money that's not going to (laughs) happen
3: right right Mm
2: -hmm. so you know so so what kind of things are 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 you looking to do um in this film like what what would people get out of what are they going to see when when you show it to them
1: yeah, this film, like I said, it's, it's going to be more personal a- as of now. You know, it could change drastically between now and August when it's released. Uh, I'm sorry, next August of 2020. But, um, you know, they're going to see personal interviews. They're going to see location footage. So it's going to be a very Chicago-centric film because I figured, well, if I live in Chicago... I'm here every day. I could go out and film these sites, you know, whereas some of these companies that come in from other, you know, from L.A. or New York or from other places, they may have a limited time period where they have to get certain footage. But I think the great thing about being here is that I could show and relate the fact that it's a very Chicago-centric film by a Chicago native filmmaker made on a Chicago native serial killer and all the victims were murdered in Chicago. So, you know, again, I'm trying to keep a, a very local field and trying to make it too huge. But it will encompass, you know, all parts of his life from birth to execution. And, you know, probably especially, you know, a decent amount on his childhood, plus his celebrity status at the end there when he was in prison on death row. Mm.
2: Well, what did you find right. out that was sort of new? Or have you found anything um, that was particularly um, interesting to you?
1: I found out so much through my researches, and when I tell people, you know what I'm, um, you know what I f- discovered, and, and what I'm going to put into the film, they have no idea. They're kind of shocked. They, you know, their response: I didn't even know that. I didn't even hear about these things. You know, one right. of the you know big things is that when Gacy was in Waterloo, Iowa. When he was in prison there in Anamosa for the uh, for sodomizing a young man, you know he was supposed to serve 10 years. He got out in 18 months. Well, why? Because he was such a good guy. When he left, they were sorry to see him go. He was a head chef. He was part of their choir. He helped them. He was part of their chamber of commerce. He was such a nice guy that what he did was he knew that there was a miniature golf closing. And he... Made sure that all of these items could be transferred to the prison, so they could rebuild that miniature golf course in the prison for the prisoners. And guess what? That miniature golf course is still there to this day. Thank God for John Gacy. Hmm. So you see, there's two sides of him. You know, you could seriously look at the the nice guy that dressed up as a clown and you know performed for children in the hospital, that's during the day. You know, but at night, of course, he was this evil guy who was, you know, murdering these young men. So it's it's very especially with his case, there's this extreme duality that, you know, I'm sure everybody, everybody was shocked. Maybe not, you know, some of his workers that, you know, dug the trenches, but, you know, I, I think there were a lot that were probably shocked. Almost everybody was shocked. And I don't know if they were shocked that you know he murdered, you know, thirty-three young men. Or were they more shocked that he got one over on the entire city of Chicago in six years? One man murdered thirty-three young men. Well, thirty-two before the displays one. And it's like, wow, how does that happen?
3: <laughs> well, that charm of that Ted Bundy the same way. you uh, yeah. and that's why I was saying that one of the commonalities is both those guys were had that narcissistic personality disorder, and then and that. I like that charm and that uh, brilliance. that Oh, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. They, you know, and a lot of them do, you know, and that that's how they get by, you know, doing these things. But, you know, Gacy is such a specific case because all these, you know, 28 bodies, well, 27 and the one in the garage were under his house, you know, and it's like... He he had him there. He brought him there. You know what about neighbors? What about police? What about friends? What about anybody? Mm. (laughs) I mean, he really fooled everybody. He was he did pull the biggest con in in the history of America, I believe.
3: And he probably enjoyed that as well.
1: (laughs) Oh, of course, you know. And that's the thing. You know, the last quote in my film is going to be: "I always wanted to be in the limelight," which that's Mm. what he said, and he got it. You know, he was really the first celebrity serial killer. Obviously, you know, there was a public interest in serial killers going all the way back to Jack the Ripper. But, you know, and probably even before that, but, you know, with the advent of mass media and newspapers and roving video cameras, you know, it just burgeoned so much. And then Gacy, of course, took advantage of that, having the 900 number in his cell that people could call and talk to him. He had his own phone in his cell. He (laughs) had the paintings. He had the business of the paintings. He wrote his own book. People wrote books on him. I mean, he was, you know, it was huge. He was this huge celebrity serial killer, and people loved it. They'd visit him or write him. I have a whole book with letters from people all around the world that wrote Gacy, all around the world that wrote him, including Oprah, because she wanted him to be on her show, and just this interest. People love this stuff, and now we've gotten to a point when I go to conventions, you know, it's kind of become more accepted in a pop culture as far as serial killers go, where, you know, 10, 20 years ago, even then, it was kind of like, eh, yeah, that's just creepy. But now, you know, it's like every time I do a convention, as the months go by, especially with shows like Mindhunter and some of these other shows, people are love it. The females, the largest demographic, they can't get enough of this stuff.
0: Mm.
2: Do you think AC was a split personality, like dual? Do you think he realized... Um, what he did as a person and that he was gay even though he hated being gay and do you know what I'm saying Like, was was it actually two different personalities that kind of had a conflict
1: no no Gacy knew exactly what he was doing you know and I always wondered about that because there are ever since Gacy was a child he would have these blackouts and seizures and you know reading up on him some people you know it after a while I thought well you know he's faking these things because they you know he experienced them under stressful conditions but these things these medical things do happen but by the time he got to Waterloo, Iowa and was studied there you know in their psychiatric institute he was normal you know as far as his brain function and health was you know physiologically you know there might have been some other strange issue in how he responded to stress but I think, you know, he was, you know, as normal as you could get, seriously, you know, as far as his mind. He knew what he was doing. He was in control of everything. He was a master manipulator and a con man. And I think, again, it was a time period that, you know, I think when he began in the 70s, started saying he was bisexual and he talked to, you know, his last ex wife and said, you know, I'm going in that other direction. Well, you know, who knows what did he mean? Did he mean he was going fully gay or going fully evil? You know, by killing all these kids, who knows? But I think you know he was coming more to terms with you know his being gay. But at that point, it didn't matter because it was God. You know, there are all these bodies anyway. So no, I think he was fully in control of everything. He knew what he was doing, and uh, you know, and got uh, you know got off on that. I think for him. Very similar to H.H. Holmes, it was the planning process. It was the wooing process. In the end, Gacy just called them bodies. Even when he, you know, his his attorney Karen Conti, his last attorney, she said, John, "But John, you know, these are boys." Why are you just saying their bodies? Because that's when they're when certain serial killers are done with them, they're just material. You know, of course, you have someone like a Dahmer who's even more fascinated after their death, and he wants to play around with them and see their insides. But like Gacy and Holmes, that was they're done with it. You know, they, they had their fun. You know, it was the planning, the execution, and then once it's done, he would just throw them in a the crawl space and bury them.
3: What's well, interesting about people you know exhibiting sociopathy or psychopathy or you know, like the sociopath versus the psychopath you know some one general way that they say it is sociopaths or or psychopaths are kind of born and sociopaths are made in a way but they still have some kind of something in their childhood even the psychopaths there was something happening in their childhood but that uh with that when the cognitive neuroscientists look at those guys they see that extreme lack of remorse and now they're connecting that. The, I think they call it the insula, where there is. The, they still have the ability to remorse, but they don't. But it's, it's like a minimize as the, the that sexual desire just takes over, and it just completely takes over. It's just amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, and and that's the thing. It, it turns.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com/host
1: it's into an addiction you know and and it depends on how far they go you know peter Curtin in germany he couldn't stop you know he would beat women over the head and stab them and drink their blood and all these things that, you know and he would he would have he would ejaculate when he would see blood you know and you know, and, and that's what it gets into. You know, and, and you know who knows individually. I don't think Gacy. You know, last night I was reading this, bo- this book, um "The Last Victim" by Jason Moss, who he committed suicide, but he was one of these young men that was writing the Gacy and these other ki- serial killers, and he wrote a book called "The Last Victim," and I thought it was very interesting when he said, you know, he was trying to ask Gacy about the murders, and Gacy was like, yeah, you know, I don't want to talk about him, I, I you know. They was done. They were. I threw them down there, and it was all done. It was over with. And that's how he looked at them. He just looked at them as trash. He thought they were, you know, these gay hustlers were trash. And he said, you know, they deserve to get what they did. And and you know, but see that ties into society's view of gays, especially at that period. And you know, I mean, we're we're still going through it now. Not as bad as it was then, but at least now, like I said, there are these outlets that, you know, if he was around now, he may have been able to go to a gay and lesbian center. You know, there are those outlets, but. You know, in the 1950s, you know, between his family and society, all you he heard was negativity, and he internalized all that.
3: You know, it's interesting because not you know very few people become a serial killer, and a lot of people have experienced that that little that little bit subtle difference to create this you know that serial killer with that same kind of experience with you having to deal with now to me is amazing Uh, when you're film make a filmmaker you gotta get into so much detail of this that you're now like was it four or five or more these uh, serial offenders have you seen any connections with these
1: guys you know it's difficult when serial killer profiling or you know just forensic profiling began they thought that you could throw this blanket over all these serial killers in a sense and you know well they had to fit this triad well they they're either a bedwetter uh, they were cruel to animals or they would start fires but over time we found that you have to take these cases individually and look at them individually you know sometimes yes there are you know commonalities like i said what i have found is usually something occurs in their childhood not all of them you know i mean you had carl Panzram who had brothers and one of his brothers was a police officer so again you know you can't say you know, it's hard to say if it's genetic or if it's just across the board. I think it's an individual thing. If, if an, in, an individual, you know, and it may not be abuse, it may be a, a trauma, something they witnessed, something that fascinated them when they were a child and they wanted to know more, like Dahmer did with the insides of the bodies. And, you know, so you really have to put each one under a microscope which is what i do from my films you know i want to know everything i want to know the name of their dog the color of you know their the color of their couch i i want to know everything so then i could become an expert on their case you know and um not many people do that you know that it's easy to go on wikipedia and read stuff off you know but uh you know, I, I try and read and and research everything and, and everyone that I can, and then in the end, it's like, well, what's going to make it into the film, and how could I convey that, you know, visually or through these interviews? So, yeah, it's very difficult. You know, now, I mean, I, you know, I've got a stack of books here that, you know, it's two, four, six, eight, there's 10, 12 books on Gacy sitting on. You know, I've got a file of police reports. You know, I'm going to get more reports, and... You know, eventually these will all be in another book. i you know, because I, I release books with true crime case files. I released a book on Geen Dahmer Holmes, and Fish, and they were all true crime case files. Hmm. You know, which I think is more interesting for the reader rather than me giving my own opinion, like a hundred people have done already. You're reading, actually reading, you know, their words in these police files. Right, right.
2: No, no, not all of Gacy's victims were were hustlers. Uh, did did he kind of? Um you know so when he when he got just a normal kid like the one that was working in the store and stuff how did he uh, justify something like
1: that well and and see that's the thing too his his victims were varied you know i mean you know you would when people would talk to him he would say yeah there were hustlers and they all deserved to die well that's not true they weren't all hustlers they weren't all gay you know it was an amalgamation of hustlers you know, and hustlers could be straight. You know, they don't necessarily have to be gay. They could be, you know, straight just to make money. So, you know, it was it was hustlers, it was gay men, and it was employees because who's going to think that your boss is going to kill you, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I think they were, in a sense, victims of opportunity. You know, if he felt how far he could go with these victims, again, that courting phase where he would pretend to be, Interested in their, you know, plight and if they're a hustler and be nice to them, more of a father figure. He needed to get them to trust him. So by the time he said, you know what, during the day, I, you know, act as a clown. You know, I do these clown acts and do tricks. You know, I got this handcuff trick and let me show you. I'm going to put this on behind my back. Watch. Now the cuffs are on, right? Now watch. Boom, I got them off. So here you put them on, you know, because he's a nice guy. You know, he's father, businessman. Here, you try it so the kid does it and then the kid gets his but you know again with each step dc learned and revised his methods the first times he would put the handcuffs on the kid in front and one of them kicked him and wound up got you know getting away and getting out of the cuffs so he learned to have them put the cuffs behind them because then he could control them even more. So then once they were in the cuffs, he would tell them, well, you know, the trick is you need to have the key because he had the key and that's how he would get out of the cuffs. And then he would torture them and abuse them for hours or days even sometimes until he eventually showed them the rope trick where he he or he said even some of them put the rope on the neck themselves and he would just tighten it like a tourniquet and they would die. And... Um, you know in the end that's the sad part that you know it's just all these you know victims you know yes there were some of them I do have to admit and we all have to admit some went in a strange car with a strange person to a strange house in a strange location. Yes, I mean, obviously we're not saying that they deserve to die, but, you know, they did take some chances. So, you know, it's just fascinating how, you know, people can trust other people. And, you know, you look at that time period, you know, even the 70s, Stranger Danger was around. Kids were still hitchhiking. You know, there were still serial killers out there, but they didn't know what serial killers were. They didn't have a name for them at that time period.
3: One of the interesting... I was just uh, um, make a comment about the um, trying to justify saying that he deserves to die. That's almost not what a serial offender, I think, would do. As let's say, for example, my background as a military officer, when let's say we're required to, let's say, my job was to drop torpedoes on submarines. To for a normal human being to kill other human beings, you have to kind of repress stuff. To say they deserved it because they'll kill my family or whatever, how you have to repress that? I don't think some of these serial offenders have the ability to repress because it doesn't matter if it's a butterfly, a fly, or a human. There, it just there's no there's no need to repress. So I bet he did not have to justify anything. He just, oh yeah, this you know that was probably the desire. There is my th- thinking. Uh, is that what you well,
1: experienced? Yeah, that's what I think so. And, and you know, that desire was ultimately what ruled him. And, you know, a lot of these murders, too, were enacted after times of stress. You know, his father passed away on Christmas Day. So every Christmas he was stressed out about that, you know. And, and again, you can't use stress. You can't use his alcoholism or, you know, his drug addiction. You know, and, again, he, he you know, you can't blame it all on those things because mm-hmm. the last victim he picked up you know witnesses said that he was coherent and didn't seem to be higher on anything so again you know there's always you know i think as a society we want to look for answers and blame and all these things but you're right in the end they they do what they want because they want to and it's an addiction and a compulsion and they enjoy it he enjoyed torturing these young men he he would enjoy you know dunking their heads into a bathtub full of water until they almost drowned and then reviving them that's part of the game you know mm-hmm. and that and that's part of his MO and that's like i said that's what he enjoyed he enjoyed the courting process and the torturing process because then once he had them handcuffed he could do whatever they wanted you know then it's almost like a Dahmer situation but it's a live subject whereas Dahmer just wanted them dead so he could play with them Gacy wanted them to be alive so he could dominate over them mm. Mm.
2: So, I mean, in today's day, you know, with all these uh, uh, dating apps and hookup apps and stuff, people are putting themselves in the same position, really.
1: Yes, but I believe there are ways to trace, you know, all these things, you know, through these apps, because now, you know, I think it was the book uh, Killer Clown. At the end of it, they revised it recently and they did say, you know, who knows, nowadays with the advent of video cameras being everywhere and these apps and, you know, things are more traceable now than they were back then. You know, I mean, look at the police force. You know, I forget what uh, my friend Stephen, uh, the author of Real Life Monsters, I interviewed him for the film, Stephen gianangelo And, you know, he even said that at that time period in the 70s, there was a term for it that, you know, that they just couldn't keep track of all these victims and these missing persons. So, you know, you have to look at it from all these angles. You know, again, it's easy to blame you know, the police force for not, you know, uh, catching him earlier, but, you know, it, you're talking about a big city. So, again, that's why I want to do all the investigation for this film and, and, and not blame anyone particularly, but try and get all of, you know, the sides of the story as well.
2: Do you think the police were weak as compared to how they felt about the uh, gay community and about a lot of the kids that ended up dead? Was, was that a factor as well?
1: Well, you know, I've heard in Chicago in the past that, um, especially, I think in the '60s and early '70s, that you know there was always a contentious relationship between the gays and the police. You know, and I think, you know, it came down. Some, you know, had said, and again, you know, I'm not an expert at this, but some had said that the then Mayor Bolandic had issues because. You know, he was trying to clean up parts of the city, you know, for the uh, the the elections that were coming. So, um, you know, I found it interesting. Many things I've learned on this doing this documentary, one of them was that in the early days when gay bars began in Chicago, they were owned by the mafia because Hmm. the city would continually come in and raid them. So when the mafia owned them, the mafia would just pay off the police so they wouldn't raid them. That was normal. You know, so it's very interesting the further you go you know, further back you go, people don't realize they say, Well, yeah, he was a bad guy and all this, but there were other events that were going on too, you know, and again I don't think there's anyone blame. I think the time period, society, all these things were just the perfect time period for him to get away with what he got away with. But I also think it's interesting in the end, you know, when you do think about this, you know, it took, you know, this heterosexual white male from the suburbs to raise attention, you know, because it's almost as if Gacy was speaking the truth that was on the minds of many people, that these hustlers in Chicago were just garbage. Why does it take, you know, uh, you know, a a heterosexual white male from Des to suddenly alert people? That there's something going wrong here. After 32 are dead, <laughs> you know, it's like that's yeah, kind of, you know, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and what do you think about now? Gacy's brain isn't that with uh, Dr. Morrison?
1: Yeah, Dr. Morrison has it, you know, which is very interesting. You know, I, I, I actually wanted to hold it in my hands, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I interviewed Dr. Morrison for my show, Serial Killer Culture TV, and. We had arranged to meet at a law office, and I had set up the camera, and I'm waiting for her to come in, and she had a large bag on her shoulder, and she pulls out a large pickle jar with John Wayne Gacy's brain in it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I said, wait, you were walking around the streets of Chicago with this brain in your bag? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, man, now every time I see a woman with a big bag, I'm like thinking, well, what's in that bag? You know, <laughs> is there a brain in brain,
2: there? Or yeah. brain or,
1: you know, but... Um, So that was really fascinating, you know, and, and, you know, we discussed Gacy and, you know, her being, you know, his psychiatrist at the time. And, um, you know, so I have, you know, archival stock footage as well from my shows that I might, you know, put into this film. And we'll see how it goes about right now. Like I said, it's the first phase of the interviews um, where I'm interviewing people and I, I haven't touch base with the people that i've interviewed about the case before so right now i'm trying to find you know new people and, and and different perspectives you know to interview but again you know when we talk about budget you know it's like i'd love to put stock footage into this film but you know these major companies they charge three three to four thousand dollars per second for footage Ooh. Mm. wow yes yeah <laughs> per second wow yeah so now how about you know, your
3: own films I mean, uh, for example, is there any kind of like connection like when you did Albert Fisher or Carl Pandram to make any connections? Could you use your own uh, material for that?
1: Yes, I do own all my material 100%. So, you know, there are some interviews that I did for my TV show. I interviewed Gacy's, obviously, you know, psychiatrist Helen Morrison, but I also interviewed his childhood friend, Barry Buscelli who on camera would talk about you know the abuses that he saw Gacy you know go through enacted by his father you know the the berating calling him dumb and stupid and beating him and you know some forensic psychologists believe that you know even worse than the physical damage was the you know psychological damage of being called dumb and stupid and he could never do he could never do right and he could never do wrong you know one one situation that was told that you know, uh, Casey's father wanted to take him for an outing. You know, because he couldn't play sports because he supposedly had a bad heart condition, but never really existed. I think his mother just wanted to baby him, you know, and didn't want him to get hurt. But his father saw him as this, you know, uh, you know Nancy boy. He's gonna, you're gonna be a mama's boy, you know, uh, you know, calling him all these names. So his dad said, "Well, let's go fishing." So they went to Wisconsin to go fishing, and it was pouring rain. Mm-hmm. So of course, his father's blaming john for all that it's your fault you know if we wouldn't have come here it wouldn't have been all this rain then the rain stops so they finally start fishing then the fish aren't you know there's no fish that are biting so the father once again eh, it's your fault if you weren't so dumb and stupid these fish would be biting and you know imagine continually hearing that every day you know throughout your childhood that's got it they had to have made an impact on gacy right
2: yeah Uh, There's still got to be something else to it, right? Because there's plenty of people that get treated that way.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are many factors, you know, and and that's why I'm putting Gacy under the microscope. But, you know, how he was treated as a child, what experiences he went through. When he was a child, he had a lot of inappropriate sex, you know, under the age of seven. You know, when he was two years old, you know, he was taken by a teenage neighbor to a field and fondled, and you know, when he was like seven, there would be a contractor friend that would kind of wrestle with him, and Gacy's head would always wind up in the guy's crotch. So, you know, he had these strange sexual incidences when he was a children. Yeah, some kids go through these things, but there, it's all these. Again, when you add up all these factors, I think, you know, you know, they kind of created him. But you know, to me, it was really the fact that. You know, he had to hide who he really was. You know, he couldn't come out. He couldn't say he was gay be, because of how society would have reacted. And I think, but, you know, as you say, and, and we rationalize this, there are many people that lived like that at that time period and didn't murder people. So there are many factors. But I think seeing and hearing that violence when he was a kid, you know, when he was two years old, his father beat his mother bloody you know, seeing that and experiencing that and all this abuse and this violence in the house, I think that made an impression on his brain too. You know, there's so many, so many factors.
3: Right. And it's interesting about what you were talking about too is, is there a kind of a genetic connection? And one of the cognitive neuroscientists, he realized that his brain kind of acted very similar to some of the the serial offenders he saw. Then he realized in his home family, he had lots of violent offenders. and And then so there was this kind of Almost a possible connection with that, and I was thinking about with John Wayne Gacy. Just think if, let's say, for example, that that pathway they talk about with the the uh, amygdala to the uh, the insula, there is reduced already that he has a I- inability to, uh, to to show remorse, and then experience all of that. You could see how that he, he would he could uh, how it could go to a serial offender issue.
1: Oh yeah yeah easily you know and uh, again you know you really have to take each case individually and yeah I mean that's one thing I thought about I thought it would be interesting because I don't know if anyone ever has done research on the background of his family and how many other people as far as his ancestors were violent or addiction Mm -hmm. you know as far as alcohol or drugs now his father wasn't you know addicted to alcohol Gacy was, you know, addicted to murdering and eventually he was drinking and and you know taking a lot of uppers and downers as well towards the end there too. So
3: Right. Oh, well, that would be great for your show too. Your movie. If <laughs> you found some more stuff. That would
1: be awesome. Yeah. Right. That's what I'd like to research, you know, again. We all, we all, and, and that's what I, you know, in, in my films, I usually portray the killer's life from birth to death, and I do all these reenactments. But, you know, with Gacy, you know, we know he murdered 33 victims. We know he buried them in the crawl space. We know he lived at two thirteen Somerdale. There are a lot of these things we know, so I'm trying to find out some of these lesser things that people will be fascinated by and say, wow, I never even knew that. I mean, he he had this whole mini golf course, moved to the prison in uh, Uh, Iowa, that's, you know, that's, wow, you would have never thought that, you know, and i am seeing a lot of these little things here and there that I've never heard before that are fascinating to me, and I think they'll be fascinating to others, but especially, again, when you're, it's, it's, I want to make sure that most of the people are people that either met him or worked for him or arrested him, you know, or tailed him, you know, I wanted to hear from their mouths themselves.
2: Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Now, how do people um, donate if they want to donate to uh, your film or they want to be part of supporting you in some way? What's the best way they go about doing this?
1: Yeah, the best way is I have a GoFundMe and it's very simple. It's just www.gofundme.com backslash Borowski Films. And that's the fundraiser. And there's a bunch of Perks. Right now, we have limited edition, autographed and signed, and numbered prints of Pogo the Clown, done by UK artist Sam Hain. Um, You know, and as I go along, we have these other perks. Plus, just by being donating to the film, you receive a credit in the film. So, you, you know, and there are different tier levels. You could, and it'd be anywhere from a contributor to associate producer to an executive producer. So, again, it, there are some physical perks, but it's more about funding the film getting the film made and then you know seeing your name on the screen so
2: mm-hmm. wow now what is your website for people if they want to come check out some of your work
1: yeah my website is johnborowski.com, just my whole name j o h n B-O-R-O-W-S-K-I, just my name, and I've got pages all over Facebook. I have, you know, my page, fan page, and then pages for my films and books as well. So, you know, with social media, it's kind of like it's all out there. And, uh, you know, if people want to see my stuff, all of my films are on Amazon Prime. That's the best way. If you just type my name in on Amazon, all my films will come up. they are documentaries, short films. And um, the books are on Amazon as well. So Amazon right now is kind of like the hub of, you know, all my work.
2: Hmm. Fascinating. Well, John, um, again, thank you very much for um, coming on the show and uh, all of your work. And uh, uh, please, anybody that wants to support uh, indie filmmakers, uh, um, put your two cents in.
1: (laughs) Great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.